That's good. Well, or like, uh, or like I really like green rivers. So, but that's you don't find those hardly anywhere. All right, let's open up in prayer. Let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. And we just pray that you be glorified in all of our interactions, in all this time, and in our worship service as well. We give you all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Church history class. And uh, uh, I'm sure that we'll have people trickling in. I know I've got a wife floating around the building somewhere, so people will be trickling in as we go. But <clears> the <throat> last two years now, Granted, I took three months out of that off, you know, but... And there is summer, that's right? right? So that's technically six months. Sure, there you go. Um, nine months. But, so we, we, we've talked about the, the first uh, 13 centuries of the, of the church as we've been going through, not just our church, but the church, and how that fits into going on in the world. And now we're finishing off, this week and next, we're finishing off, pardon me, the Age of Crusades. We've gone through, I was just saying, six Crusades, which is not actually accurate, because we've also been talking about a crusade in France and a crusade in, in, in Northern Europe, all sorts of fun different things. But at this point in history, uh, this, okay, the look at your face, this, saw the last line. this classic line, this is actually from a pope. That's what the pope said when the crusaders in France said, how do we tell the, the, the Christians from the heretics? How do we tell the people that say that they're Catholics from the people that we should be killing? And the pope said, kill them all. God knows his own. It's not for you to decide that stuff. If there's a town that's having problems with this particular heresy, kill everybody in that town, and God will figure out which ones were the heretics. So, wacky fun then. Europe, at this particular time, massive upheaval. Lots of different things going on in this particular time in history. So we're going to have some fun. Last time we talked about how the Mongols had really grown in power. When you realize that this is the empire of the Mongols at the end of uh, Genghis Khan's reign, that that was the Roman Empire, the extent of its height, you realize when, when we talk about the Mongol invasions, we tend to go, oh, that's an interesting little tidbit of history. It's huge. It's huge. The Mongol invasion of, of Asia and it, of Europe changed everything. I mean, what have we already talked about that the Mongol invasion has, has changed, fundamentally? It knocked out the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, out of it. yeah up, up until this point in history, there's the Latin-speaking church and the Greek-speaking church, and they're both roughly equally large. Now, the, the, the Latin-speaking church has been the more aggressive one over the last couple hundred years. The Greek-speaking one has been the more civilized one over the last couple hundred years. So they're, they're diverging. But they're both growing, they're both big, they're both equally what is considered Christianity in the world. If somebody thinks Christianity, they could go in either camp. The Mongols have destroyed almost every city in Asia. And most of the Christian cities in there were the Greek-speaking Christian cities. About the only, the only part of the Greek Christian world that hasn't gotten stepped on, the only two parts, would be Russia, and Constantinople. And even Constantinople has gotten sacked by Crusades. the Crusades. There's a whole crusade that said we're going to go to the Holy Land, never made it there because they were too busy ransacking, raping, and pillaging in Christian Constantinople. So, this is kind of a huge part of a huge time in history. Genghis Khan's son, Ugadai, who's the new great Khan, has commanded his nephew Batu to, to conquer the Rus over here. Alright? Spent nearly two years working on it, and then three years doing it. This is getting huge. I mean, do you remember when, when we saw Islam growing, and everybody started going, whoa, that grew fast. This dwarfs all that. And this is, this is much bigger than anything else that's been going on. And they sacked Kiev in 1240 AD. Is this the only guy that's successful with uh, Yes, but... Uh, yes, other than the Russians. But, <laughs> but yes, the problem... Not only is it hard to take Russia, it's hard to hold on to it. Again, anybody that's played diplomacy or risk, it's hard to take Russia. It's really hard to hold on to Russia because it's just so big and the weather is so bad. So, a lot of the credit uh, rests on a guy named Subutai. And 
Again, you, that may be a name that I may toss out a couple of names here that you say, I've never heard that before. But if you've studied this era of history at all, some of the names I'm tossing out, you'll you, you know, ooh, I totally heard of that guy. Subutai is was was one of the greatest generals in history, and if you've never heard of him, I'm really sorry, you should have. Because as one source summarized, I'll even say it, he directed more than twenty campaigns in which he conquered what? No. Uh in which he conquered uh, 32 nations and won 65 uh, 65 pitched battles during which he conquered or overran more territory than any other commander in history. This guy was brilliant. And again, very few people hear about him, which is a shame. And he has like a big cat? <laughs> okay, in this, in this particular painting on the Great Wall of China. Yeah, actually, um, I'm not entirely certain why Subutai in this picture has that. There, there are two good pictures I could take of Subutai. There's this one and one that was um, from China, and it was extremely dramatic. Um, I will say, however, that at this point in history, and we'll talk about this when we get to Kublai Khan, but at this time, uh, the, the Mongols have taken as an affectation exotic animals. They love hanging out with exotic animals. Uh, Kublai Khan, in, in his uh, summer fortress, summer palace, loved to go walking uh, with his uh, panthers and his leopards and let them eat whatever exotic animals they want and then he would have his people go get more versions of that exotic animal. That's when you know you're crazy rich. You know, is when you sit there and you go, I want that beautiful, beautiful bird. That's an awesome bird. You know, yeah, there's only three of them in existence. We had to climb Mount the Liberty you know, to get that for you. Okay. Ooh, look, Shotzi wants to eat it. Go eat it, Shotzi. Shotzi eats it and he goes, okay, Go get me another one. Crazy rich. In every sense of the term, crazy rich. So, there's actually some reason. I, I don't know exactly why this artist paints him with a leopard, but that's not entirely inaccurate. I mean, that's the sort of affectation I would not be surprised if he's, if, if I were to read somewhere, yeah, yeah, a leopard. Yeah, okay. But extremely powerful guy. Part of his genius was the willingness to, to make all sorts of new technologies and make use of new technologies. For instance, created whole new siege engines and created whole new uh, uh, defensive and offensive maneuvers within sieges. Um, changed how they did siege and, and how they understood that sort of thing. He was also an innovator in cavalry techniques. Um, up until this point, even amongst a lot of the Mongols, up until this point, cavalry was you ride up and you smack each other. Right, you ride up with a lance that you can only really carry reasonably on on a, on a horseback, and you ride through infantry and you smack them with the, you poke them with the lance, you smack them with your mace, you smack them with your sword. Melee. He came up with the idea of going. Wait, wait, wait! Everybody keeps doing heavier and heavier and heavier cavalry. How about we do lighter cavalry from a distance? For instance. You are doing tank warfare. If you'll notice, this is exactly the sort of thing that we did in the 20th century. Came up with tanks, then they came up with heavier tanks, and then they came up with heavier tanks. And so if you're an insurgent, you try to build yourself heavier tanks, right? You're living out in the, in the wilderness of Afghanistan. You need to build heavier tanks than the Americans can build, right? No! What do you do to take out tanks? Yeah, you get mines, you get bazookas or RPGs. You ride your horse down out of the mountains with an RPG, go poosh, take out a tank, and then ride away. You go, I don't need to be heavier than them. I need to be faster than them. And that is that is history in a nutshell. The history of, if you want history of, of, of the military in a nutshell, it's bigger, heavier, heavier, heavier. Oh, wait, faster, lighter, from a distance more. Oh, how do you take those out? Well, then more faster. Well, then you need better armor. So you get heavier and heavier and heavier, which point somebody else goes, oh, wait, faster and from a distance. That's it in a nutshell. Which is why I first blushed when they, when they first came up with using planes in warfare. An amazing number of generals went, well, that's just crazy. Planes are a fad. What can you possibly do with a plane? Ride overhead and shoot at them with a pistol? A plane can't do anything. Yeah, you could drop a bomb from them. Well, you'd have to have a heavier plane to carry a bomb. But let's make a heavier plane. Et cetera, et cetera. Okay. He also made use of new technologies like gunpowder, which had never been used before. While the Chinese were still using it for entertainment, Subutai came up with weaponizing it. You know, we can do some damage with this. And yes, they actually had stuff like this. 
where you, you make a rocket, or you put a rocket and have wings on it, so it actually makes it into the castle and blows up. Or you light something on fire and you throw it into the castle. Or you fling it into the castle and it blows up. Again, Chinese went, oh, yeah, we were making essentially firecrackers. And, and we were doing, you know, nifty flares up in the sky. And Super Tide's like, you know, if that explodes near a person, you could do some damage. Yeah, we have some accidents. How about we do that not by accident? How about we blow somebody up on purpose? Dangerous guy, Super Tide. So, he led three armies into Europe itself. He led one across the, or along the Danube into southern Hungary, one across the Carpathian Mountains into Romania, and one entered Poland just as the Teutonic Knights were entering. Okay, do you remember last week we talked about the Teutonic Knights? The toughest guys anywhere. The toughest guys. These guys were the, the toughest knights. And they were taking advantage of this forced ceasefire that was in the, in the Middle East. They're not allowed to go kill any Muslims. So who do you kill? I guess you got to kill somebody in Europe, right? So they get allowed by the Pope to go to crusades in Northern Europe. Ostensibly, it's supposed to be about these pagan Baltic Prussians over here. But really soon, it just is like everybody. Everybody who's not currently part of the Holy Roman Empire will just attack them. Anybody not currently speaking German, because that's the way we think. I'm German, I can say that. It's like, wait, you don't speak German. And you should. Yeah. So they're they're attacking Poland, and they're entering Poland at the same time that the Mongols are. So on April 9th, 1214, the world's toughest knights faced the world's best cavalry at the Battle of Leibniz in Poland. And what happened? A lot of people died. A lot of people died. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Mongols. Still here. No. Mongols kicked their butts. And, and took over Poland. Now, I, I looked at, that sounds like the wonderful lead-in. You know, the Mongols are invading. Is, is Europe Mongolian? No. So we stopped them there. No. The world's toughest knights met the world's best cavalry and lost. And he goes, if the Teutonic Knights get walked, who beats these guys? Yeah. Who beats the Mongols? Nobody. Nobody beats the Mongols. Ever. So why isn't the world Mongolian? Because the only people who can beat the Mongols are the Mongols. More about that. Alright. So Subutai presses westward and he takes over Hungary. If you notice, it just keeps getting more and more and more green, right? This pale green. Not the dark green of Islam. The pale green of most of, of Mongols. I have to keep fighting new colors. But destroyed Pest in 1241, defeating King Bela IV, destroyed the largest city in Hungary, slaughtering half the population of the nation. Half the population of Hungary dies in one year because of the Mongols. And the Mongols are poised to take on the Holy Roman Empire itself. The Holy Roman Empire sits there and goes, we will lose. This is the way this works. Friedrich the Emperor pulls all of his people together, and says, if I get all of my guys and we work really hard, we will lose. Because they have more guys, they're better at it, and they use the stuff that blows up. I don't get it. But we're going to lose. And that's when they all left. All the Mongols went home. They've been beating everybody, and they all just left. Why? No. <laughs> well, was it tough to hold? I mean, th their area is so big, and they have so many, they, don't, they can only have so many people to hold this land. Except that the way that they did it was, they're like, I don't need to have it. The Mongols weren't trying to conquer and rule. They were like a street gang. A street gang doesn't have to occupy every business on their street. They just hang out at the pool hall. But every business has to give them money. Otherwise, they're going to go up, blow up your business. I don't have to occupy your territory. I just will burn everything, rape every woman, burn every city, burn every library, destroy everything, unless you give me money. And if we give you money, leave me alone. You're just a Mongolian tributary. I'm not trying to make you Russian. I'm not trying to make you German. Teutonic Knights are trying to make you Christian. I don't care. I just want your money. Or I'll destroy everything that matters to you. It's absolute justice. Shock and awe. That's all that they do all the time. Now, they went home because 
It's a funky little tradition in, in Mongolian uh, uh, tradition, culture, that when the great Khan dies, everybody goes back. Everybody goes back to the capital, and they all honor him at his funeral, and they all have to get together and chew on things and elect who's going to be the next great Khan. That's what they did. So, when Ogedai Khan died, when, when Batu heard about this at the very, very beginning of, of 1242, he packed up Subutai, packed up all the troops, and all of them went home. Everybody. Hundreds and hundreds of miles of territory. They just all just left it, and, and it all reverted back to what it was before. Because that's what Ogedai did when Timujin, when Genghis Khan died. Ogedai's eldest son, Gid, was chosen to replace him. And that's just the way this is going to work. Now, what's interesting is, Batu wanted to be the next great Khan, too. And Gyuk was a little concerned about that, so he said, you know what? You've been extremely successful with Subutai, so you don't get Subutai back. I'm going to use Subutai because I want to invade China. You don't get Subutai because I'm concerned that you might want to be the next great Khan. And so, Europe is saved because Batu can't go back with his best general and retake all the stuff that he just took. With Subutai, he could probably have retaken it really, really quickly. Without him, he didn't even want to try. And so, because you have two cousins fighting over which one gets to be Khan, Europe would say, freaky history. It's just freaky the things that things turn on. Anyway, so the Teutonic Knights are sitting there going, woohoo! We got the bullet! This is great! 1242, what do you do? And you go, well, we're going to we're going to take the territory that they left. They backed up away from all these great Russian territories. We can take those, right? Right? As the Mongols are retreating, the Teutonic Knights say, "Now nah, we can go forward. We're going to go into that Novgorod Republic over there in, 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 in the Russian territories. We're going to attack the Rus. They're already weak. They're already in shambles. We'll take them. And we'll take them for Jesus. Because it's not like they're Christian. They're are they pagan? No! The Rus are Eastern Orthodox. And so now we can go slaughter the Eastern Orthodox people for Jesus. It's great! Let's be German. So overwhelmed, the Rus called for their exiled prince, a guy named Alexander, to come and lead their forces. Alexander had been exiled by his brother, Fyodor, because Fyodor said, I'm concerned that you're going to want to take power because you're stronger than me. I'm older than you. I'm more legit than you are, but you're stronger than me. You're a better military leader. Therefore, you're exiled. When Dad passes away, I want you nowhere near the throne. So, even though Theodore died years before, Alexander still off in exile when the Crusaders came, when the Teutonic Knights came. In fact, he was serving with the Mongols. He was actually helping the Mongols learning how to deploy mounted archers and light cavalry, changing the way that they did things. So, his people came and said, you know what? We'll give you the throne if you can take care of these Teutonic Knights. And they knew he could do it because two years earlier, he'd come to their aid when the Swedes had invaded. And he had taken out the Swedes. And so they're like, we know that you're a good commander. You can save Russia. You've done it before. Do it again. We'll give you the throne this time. So you're Alexander. You go, sure, whatever. Um, in fact, because it was the Battle of Neva, they referred to this guy as Alexander of Neva or Alexander Nevsky. Again, this is one of these things you go, I don't know what that means. If you study this time at all, this is like the greatest hero of Russian history, Alexander Nevsky. Anyway, interesting fellow. So, his cavalry, his archers, met the crusaders at this narrow pass leading over to the Lake Pipus. Papus. I, I have no idea how to pronounce it. I'm going to say Pipus. Near Dorpat, where the, where the crusaders had kind of entrenched. And he feigned a retreat. He attacked them in the pass, and then feigned a retreat onto the frozen lake. And all the crusaders followed him out onto the frozen lake. And they spent hours fighting with heavy cavalry on this frozen lake. And then, after he had been fighting for hours, he retreated and had all these light cavalry guys, cavalry archer guys, come in and start attacking the crusaders on the ice. Crusaders are exhausted. And now they're having to dodge arrows. They know that they can't fight these guys. So they retreat in the afternoon sun, onto the deeper part of the lake, where the ice is thinner, in the heat of the afternoon sun, with their heavy horses and all their armor. What happens? 
Yeah, much crashage and dying edges. Hundreds of Teutonic Knights crash through the ice and drown. And they just get absolutely slaughtered. In one moment, Alexander is canonized as an Orthodox saint for saving Russia and saving the church. Now remember, again, we've talked about this. Why is it that when we think um, Orthodox, where's the center of like Greek Orthodox or, or, or even we think specifically Russian Orthodox, you don't, you don't think Constantinople, you don't think Turkey, where it used to be centered. We tend to think maybe Greece, or a lot of times Russia, you know, in large part because of Alexander Nevsky, in large part because as the, as the Mongols were destroying everything, they started to destroy things in Russia and then sucked back at the last minute. And Alexander Nevsky came and fought off the Latin Christians who were attacking. So you get one bastion of they've still got cities and they've still got orthodoxy, that Eastern Orthodox religion, and that's in Russia, which is why the Russian Orthodox is what we normally think of when we think about this. So it's, like I said, it's really hard to overestimate moments like this in history where everything could have gone one way and it went another way. Oh, again, study Russian history at all, they go bonkers about that. They're like, oh, the Battle of the Lake. You know, it was just a, and it makes for a really good movie. There was a classic, classic old Russian movie. Uh, uh, I think it's even, I think it's Alexander Nevsky is the name of the movie. But this old black and white thing where they have the big battle on the lake, it's really visually impressive. I'm not sure that that's the way. I'm not sure that that's the way the actual Teutonic Knights look. They all have like big, big, big helmets, but still. All right. So 1245, massive upheavals and things that could have been massive upheavals. 1245, the Roman Catholic Church says we got to start rolling up our sleeves and getting getting busy here because a lot of our stuff is not working. Pope Gregory the Ninth had actually gone to war against the emperor. The emperor and the pope fighting in the field, both of them fielding their armies, because yes, the Pope has his armies. So the Emperor is from, uh, I, you know, I, I toss this out here, I don't know that you're going to care, but there was this, there's this big feud that went on for centuries between the the, the Swabian House, Swabia is from southern Germany, House of Hohenstaufen, and the, the northern Italian or Bavarian House of Guelph, where the Italians are talking about the Gitalini and the Guelphi. It's like the Hatfield and the McCoys, for centuries. If the Hatfield and McCoys were all like kings and stuff. So you get you get kings fighting for centuries. Tons of stories in the Middle Ages about how these people hate each, hated each other a lot. There's a great story about how in a masquerade a guy dressed up in a bear suit and slaughtered another guy with an axe. And then somebody like ten years later got the same axe and the same bear suit and killed that guy. That sort of thing. I mean feuds that last forever. The new pope said, I'm going to continue this. Innocent IV says, I'm going to have that same kind of mentality. In response, Friedrich actually laid siege to Rome. Again, weird in history where you say, the Christian, Latin Christian, Roman Catholic Christian emperor of the Holy Roman Empire is laying siege to Rome saying, just give us the Pope to kill and we'll let you all go. Freaky, freaky moments in history. So Innocent slips out in 1244 in disguise in the middle of the night and goes on to Lyon in France. There, he officially says, I have papal authority to depose the emperor. The emperor is now deposed. Does that work like that? Do you get to sit there in France and say the emperor sitting there in Germany is deposed and he needs to leave my town in Italy alone? I'm not sure if it works like that. Uh, but he used the church's treasury to, bop, to bribe local officials, to bribe nobles, to bribe kings, to all try to fight against Friedrich. Because that's why that's why you give your tithes, right? You give your tithes to the church so that they can use it to bribe officials to hate the emperor. And the emperor uses his power to place his own friends and family as bishops and cardinals and things like that within the church to speak against the pope. Because that's why you have a holy Roman empire, right? Innocent, while he's in Lyon, decides to use his... By the way, we have two more weeks. Now, Randy's favorite part is that every time we get to a new section of history, he finally gets to see a, a different picture for these councils. I refuse to do a different picture for every council, so I'm doing a different picture for every era. We have two more weeks of this picture, then totally new picture, I promise, once we get into the fall. So Innocent calls together a council while he's in Lyon, and he preaches against his struggles against the emperor. He says, it's... It's like 
It's like what Jesus endured on the cross. It's wow. the same thing. I am being punished by this horrible emperor, just like Jesus was punished by the, the horrible emperors. It's the same thing. So, the church says, in light of that, let's change the colors of our clothes. I'm not kidding. And this is the flow of, of, of argument. Is the, the Pope having to deal with this just like, cross, just like Christ did on the cross. So, let's reflect that. Let's show that. From now on, priests are going to wear black to symbolize their solemnity. We're going to make that official, which is why priests wear black. You're not supposed to wear gaudy colors for the same reason that a lot of the Puritans said you shouldn't wear gaudy colors. It shouldn't be all about the colors that you wear. Bishops wear amaranth, which is like this wine-colored thing, symbolizing the wine of the Eucharist. They're, they're like important priests. And cardinals... And cardinals wear red, symbolizing the blood of Christ because they have a unique, direct connection to Christ's blood on the cross that even, even bishops don't have. Only cardinals, who are the most important bishops, get to wear red, right? Which is why you have cardinals who wear these red hats, these beretta, beretti, these, these, these four-cornered, pointy red hats, um, and garments to demonstrate that they are uniquely connected to God. So if you ever wondered why is it that bishops wear red, in fact, some even asked that the other week, you know, why is it the Council of Lyon in, in 1245? In fact, when they got to the New World and met this new bird, people said, ah, it looks like a cardinal! Which is why that stuck. So that's why we don't call cardinals cardinals because of the bird. We call cardinals cardinals because of the guys. Okay? Yeah, little... Little care, who cares moment, but just so the St. Louis Cardinals are really a Roman Catholic team. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just wondering. <laughs> you take it back far enough. Thank no you. No wonder why they won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> they have it. <laughs> you saying this is some sort of Roman conspiracy? Is that what you're getting? Probably. Yeah. Anyway, so interesting thing that the cardinal, the male, is the right one. That's right. And the, the old men there. And the women are the dull ones. So. No, well, the cardinals. That's what Cliff is getting at. The, the men are the bright ones, the women are the dull ones. And she's the one that connected that to the St. Louis Cardinals. So I'm not sure what she's getting at about St. Louis. but Whereas with bears, they're all oh, just equal. Cubs. Cubs. Okay, anyway, so the point is, is Anderson also said. What a wonderful opportunity to also press for a seventh crusade. Because every time we get, you shake your head, but you love the crusade. You, Randy wants to talk about the crusade. So we got a seventh one, because all the other ones have worked so well. We had what? One? No, two good ones. There was one good one that started off with, and another good one where Friedrich went down and said, can we just talk without killing each other? Two. Two good crusades out of the first six plus. So, to give a little bit of a background, when the Mongols invaded Persia, they pushed a group of Persians down southward, and the guys were, were uh, even even as the Muslims receded, these guys continued to move southward to connect with their their uh, uh, ultimately to well, this way, ultimately to connect to their allies in Egypt. There's the Mamluks in Egypt that these guys are connecting with, and so they took Jerusalem on their way down. So you get these these Persian Muslims who took now, actually, it's, a comp it's, it's Muslims and pagans all coming together. It's a weird group. But took Jerusalem away from the Muslims that were currently owning Jerusalem. Now, if you're the Pope, you say, oh, that's, that's horrible. You, know, well, you didn't own Jerusalem anyway. It's not like they took Jerusalem away from you. They took them away from other non-Christians. Still, though, he's like, no, this is an affront. We can't let this pass. We've got to go on crusade. We've got to retake Jerusalem for the people who just took it from people who had just taken it. So... So, he calls on King Louis IX of France to lead the Seventh Crusade. He's like, you, you're going to go retake Jerusalem because King Bela of Hungary is still beaten up over those, most, oh, those Mongols, right? He's still going, ha, 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 barely pulling his people together. And Emperor Friedrich, I can't tell him to do it. He hates me. He, if, I asked him, if I asked him to eat today, he'd, he'd starve. I mean, anything I ask him to do, he's not going to do. So... You're the only thing I got going. And and, you're, and England is still just up there fighting amongst themselves. So, 
So yeah, Louis, would you come help? At the same time, he sent a, uh, sent a letter to Duke demanding in the name of God that he stop Mongols from marauding against Christians and convert. You need to convert to Jesus Christ and maybe kill the Chorasminians. I can never say that right. I think Chorasminians. I'll say it that way. Could you go kill some of those guys? Because those guys are attacking Jerusalem. If you could go kill those guys instead of Christians, we'd appreciate it. And become a Christian. If you're Duke, what do you do? You laugh a lot. You send them a letter back saying, no, but tell you what, how about you submit to me and everybody in Europe declare themselves Basil of the Mongols? That would be more reasonable, I think. Why would I listen to a letter from him? On the plus side, Giyuk was poisoned like within a month of sending that letter and succeeded by his cousin Monkey. Which is hard to monkey. Maybe I should say monkey because because you go monkey Kong. You know, no. <laughs> uh, don't demean the poor guy's name because it sounds like monkey. But anyway, so he succeeded by monkey. And before you get too much on that <laughs> monkey, this guy turns his intentions to the east and conquers even more territory. This is his Mongolian empire. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So did they not do like India? Yeah, actually, yeah, if you notice with a lot of these things, it's mountain ranges that stop a lot of those. Now, they're working their way over there, but if you're on horseback, you look at the mountain range and you go, yeah, maybe tomorrow. You know, Squirt over the edges and get those guys. I, I'm not really interested in doing massive infantry charges or you know, let's build a railroad to the mountains. Where can I go on horseback and take a lot of stuff? That's the that's that's being Mongolian. This is what the Mongols do. So he's turning his attention to east. He's like, I want to take China. That's what I want. So King Louis is is pretty much left open to do his seventh crusade. This is going to work great. So he sets sail from southern France, makes his base at Cyprus. Now, remember this area, this kind of, I don't know what you call it, brick red, light brick red area, is the Latin Empire of the East. This is the Roman Catholics that have taken over Constantinople. They said, tell you what, would you do us a favor? There's still this remnant of the Byzantine Empire left, the guys that we pushed out of Constantinople that have made this kind of weak Nicene Empire. Could you help us fight against them? Because they're actually, they keep nipping at our heels. These guys have lick their wounds, and, and they're trying. We think it's a last-ditch effort. They're, they're dying. They're, they keep having bad uh, empire, emperors. They got totally conquered by the Mongols, but then the Mongols left. So could you come and help us against the Nicene Empire? Could you help us finish these guys off? Because they keep attacking us um, and vying for control of Constantinople. But Louis said, no, no, no. I'm going to go to Damietta. If you remember that from the Fifth Crusade, this worked so well. We held Damietta for one, at one point. We had this big, ugly siege. We held on to it. That's what I want to do. I want to go to, to Egypt. I still think this is the way to break the back of the Muslims. Yeah, but the, the Muslims currently controlling Jer Jerusalem didn't even come out of Egypt, right? Yeah, we just go to Egypt, you know, break the back of the Muslims. This will work great. So, conquers the city pretty easily. But then there was this Nile flooding. Well, that's what I said. It's the same mistake that the Fifth Crusade made. They keep forgetting that you really ought to take the terrain into consideration when you attack somebody, right? And now we're back to your Russia comment. It's like, did, did attacking Russia and trying to hold it in the winter work for Napoleon? No. Is that exactly what Hitler tried? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You really need to stop and think about this. So he goes, we're going to go to Damietta, and then we're going to get stuck there for like six months because we can't leave because of, of the flood. And then we're going to go to Cairo, because again, that's what the Fifth Crusade did. Did that work out for the Fifth Crusade? No! You can't keep stretching your guys out like this, and this is bad ground for them. And so we tried to go to Cairo, they get absolutely slaughtered trying to go to Cairo. They get, they get attacked along the road, they, get a, they, they can't take Cairo, they get attacked as they try to go back. The Egyptians, darn them, fight at night. Unlike a good Christian that says, there's a time and a place for a fight. There are rules. And these Egyptians are going, you're invading my country. There are no rules. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight you tonight. And then they, they lose uh, as they try to lay siege to Mansoura, and they end, up, they end up starving. The people in Mansoura actually have more food than the people laying siege to Mansoura. 
And she used to go, this, this is horrible. They, they barely, any of them, hardly make it out alive at all. In fact, it's so bad. It's such an absolutely devastating loss that a lot of Europeans begin losing faith in God. Not, which is ironic when you think of what the whole point of the crusade is, right? The whole point of the crusade is we're going to make more people Christians by saying, pointy sword at your throat, become a Christian. Oh, sure. Fewer Christians become Christians. In fact, one Templar poet writes, anyone who wishes to fight the Turks is mad, for Jesus Christ does not fight for them, and does not fight them anymore. They have conquered, they will conquer. Every day they drive us down, knowing that God, who was awake, sleeps now, and Muhammad waxes powerful. This is a Templar doing this. This is a monastic order of knights who says, no, oh, God fights for the Muslims now, or he doesn't care. But he certainly doesn't care about Christians anymore. So, anybody who tries to fight is insane. Now, if you were to hear somebody say this, how would you respond? Biblically, from your perspective, somebody says, we try. We try to kill people for Jesus. Obviously, Jesus doesn't care about Christian, Christians anymore. Because he doesn't let us do it successfully. Well, how would you respond? Maybe Christ doesn't want to kill people. Now, how would you defend that concept? They would say, of course he does. He wants his kingdom to grow. Anything from scripture. Or, 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 or a logical argument, anything. What are you going to say? Hey, at what point the Bible does it say Jesus wants you to kill people? Yeah, not a lot of places, no. They won't know because they can't read it. Yeah, they're not allowed. Why? Because if you remember from last week, the Bible is officially on the forbidden books list, right? The Catholic Church says, well, that's communicate possibly kill anybody who tries to read the Bible for themselves. But what from Scripture might you point to? Anything? Jesus wants his kingdom to grow, so we should go kill people. No, he says to witness. Okay. Not to kill. Okay, go make disciples. My kingdom is not of this world. You know, I, I could go kill the Romans. It's not what it came for. Anything else? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Turn turn the other cheek. Somebody smites you. Smites you. Don't smite them back. What else? Our fight is not against flesh and blood. I mean, there's specific there's specific things we can point to and go. You're doing it wrong. You're supposed to be witnessing. You're supposed to be sharing the gospel. You're supposed to be making disciples, not slaughtering anybody who disagrees with you. Strangely, that will never work. Anytime you say, I'll just kill everybody who disagrees with me, that is not the way to promulgate your idea. It might be the way to make sure that they give you taxes. It's not the way to help them agree with your concepts. Right? And since what we're trying to do is help people understand and agree with the concept, and not just do what we want them to do, it's not about externally controlling their actions, it's about internally transforming their hearts. Any of those arguments would have been as well. Or even just, you can't send 10,000 guys to the Middle East and think you're going to hold it for, for an extended period of time. You can't even discuss it tactically. Tact, tactics, tactically. Tactically. Anyway, 1252. Innocent decides to up the ante with the Inquisition. And, 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 and let's put it in this context. You've screwed up. You've lost. Something bad has happened. You thought God was behind you, and it didn't work. You have some options. I don't care whether you're talking about a crusade or you're talking about, boy, I thought, I, you know, if I, I don't know, give me an example of decisions that you make in life that you assume that God is going to bless. You get a promotion and you have to move. Okay, I, I'm assuming that's going to work. Anything else? What else? Uh, if we just have kids, we'll save our marriage. What else? Uh, we'll make this nifty ministry. And, and it'll bring thousands to Christ. If we build the Crystal Cathedral, it'll be great. We'll never have to sell it. <laughs> As is often the case, it's like you 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 lose something. You, you something really goes bad that you assumed God was was behind. So you have some, you have some options. Number one, you can lose all hope. You can just say, "I give up." Obviously, God doesn't care. That's what people were talking about doing here. You can trust God, seek his wisdom, say, apparently I didn't listen to you. Because if you're going to bless things that you have called us to do, and this sure didn't get blessed, maybe I wasn't called to it. Maybe I should rethink this a little bit, right? What else can you do? You can keep going. You can blindly sit there and go, nothing ever happened. No, this is fine. This can, let's make an eighth crusade. Because surely if we just keep doing the same stupid thing, it'll eventually work, right? 
Or you can say, I'm just going to be generally belligerent, and I will find a battle I can win. I didn't win that one, so I'm going to go fight a Tell me you haven't seen people do this. Tell me you haven't done this in a fight. We're arguing, and I start to lose, and I say, it's because, well, it's your fat. What does that have to do with anything we were just talking about? Well, because I could, you, remember, yesterday you even said I'm putting out a few pounds. Fatty. Because I can win that one. I can't win this one. So I squirt over to another one, and I'm like, I can totally win that one. You ever seen that happen? Just like Hitler. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Nazi. The same thing with like any kind of Nazi language or jargon. Racist. Uh, they always throw like uh, even Homophobe. against um the guy's dad for this whole Jim Artist Twitter thing. The guy who did it, his dad says that Jim Artist used the police like his own personal Gestapo, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's language. Yep. Yep. Well, that's the thing. It's just like, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Oh, if I throw out the word Gestapo, everyone will get behind me. Or his jackbooted thugs. Right. So yes, if you could, if you can call somebody a racist or a homophobe or a sexist pig or a Nazi, it's you know it's like a trump card that you're slapping down trying to win. But yeah, how can I how can I figure out what I can win? So what he did was he said, tell you what, none of our crusades is working. So how about if we can't use the Teutonic Knights, they keep losing. If we can't win in the Middle East, let's, I authorize the use of torture in our inquisitions. If we can't beat soldiers, we can kill peasants. That we can do. So, there you go. And then on the ante, this is a crusade we're going to win. Anything. Because they, they're, because they can't read the Bible, so they don't know anything. And, and remember, this is, again, his predecessor pope said, we want the Dominicans because they've actually read the Bible, they're actually intelligent people, they're scholarly, they don't get to torture anybody, the whole point is that they get to sit there and talk to them and try to figure out what's going on. They can use some strong arm tactics, they can confiscate property and things, but the whole point is that we try to win the people for Christ. We want to win their hearts, we want them to convert back to Christianity. That's what the Papal Inquisition was originally about. Can we convince them to be solid Christians again? By the time you get to Innocent, only a few years later, by the time you get to Innocent, he goes, I just want to win a crusade. I want to win. How do we win these people? Torture them to death, and if they renounce Satan before they die, we win. I don't, I'm not trying to grow the church. I'm not trying to get these people to, to reconvert necessarily. I'm trying to get these people to renounce Satan so that we can say, we had 17 people renounce Satan last year. You know, really? Your church grew by 17? A minute and a half each time. But, you know, just as just as the last bit of their flesh was peeling away with the hot pincers, they said, Okay, I'm sorry! Yeah, I'm a witch! And that's when we killed them. To relieve their torment. Because we love them. This is so not what Gregory intended. And this t makes total sense, because as we've said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. If you give them absolute power, you're gonna get they're gonna get wacky. But I gotta win a crusade, I gotta win somewhere. This is what I can do. But you have to understand the historical context of, as to what drove this. Why would a Pope finally go, fine? It's like, because I can't win anywhere else. Can I take Russia? No. Could I beat the Mongols? No. Can I take the Holy Land? No. Can I kill a bunch of people in France? Yeah. Then let's kill a bunch of people in France. Could this also be sort of like uh, AI, where um, they lost, like why did we lose? We lost because of us, because we have corrupt people, so therefore we got to root those out. Well, that's what originally started. If you remember, with with the first time we lost a seriously lost a crusade, everybody went, "We must have some serious heretics going in Europe. We must be broken somewhere. What is God punishing us for?" So that's what originally started this kind of looking inward for some different things. So yes, um, definitely to begin with, you can even make that argument somewhat with with, uh, with Gregory. I suppose you could make that argument with Innocent, but some of the rationales that he actually gave were um, more like, oh, I don't know the rationales that he actually gave were um, anything that we can do to 
to, to well, because it was originally part of the Albigensian crusade that's going on in France and things. So it's, we need to be able to win this one. We need to be able, we, we're not using the right tactics. We're, we're not, we're not, what's the word you Scour. We're not scouring the soul. We're, we may be scourging the body, but we're not scouring the soul. Just go, interesting. But yes, I do think that's, a, that's an excellent way of looking at it is, where in some ways if something goes spoiling in your life, maybe you should. It can be healthy to stop and say, is God trying to get my attention about something? Is there a, re is there a reason why this happened where God is saying, you know, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen? There's a, there is a precedent for this in Scripture. But it's not a one-to-one -one thing. It's not like any time something bad happens, you must be sinning somewhere in your life and God is punishing you, right? Is there some times where that's the case? Sure. Are there some times where God says, no, but I'm going to let you have the natural rec the natural recompense for the stupidity that you're doing. Why did you get a venereal disease? Oh, God is punishing my promiscuity. I don't even have to punish you. You just slept with 95 people. I'm sorry, James Bond would have a lot of venereal diseases and some serious liver damage because of the way he lived, right? Um, it doesn't even have to be punishment. It's just recompense. But sometimes it is helpful to stop and go, what are we doing this bringing this about? Um, these guys are seeing this from a very superstitious perspective. Ah, if we lost, what is God punishing? Or what is intrinsically wrong with us? We don't have the wrong philosophy. can't be that. can't be that we shouldn't be going around killing people. So it must be heresy. Now, 1260. We're going to end with 1260. 1260 is kind of a big year in history. You don't think about it. Like, you don't sit there and think, ah, 1260. It's kind of a big year. First off, there was a Byzantine general uh, named Michael, who, well, eventually became Michael Lee. Michael, who had been serving as a mercenary with the Seljuks over here in, in, in this Sultanate of Rum. We've kind of talked about that a couple of other times. But, so he's been over there actually serving with the, Mon or with the, with the Muslims. Uh, because the, the, the Sultanate of Rum has, has had, you remember how in, in Spain, we've got Muslims sitting in Spain, but they're beginning to see themselves primarily as Spanish more than Muslim? These guys, these Anatolian Muslims, are kind of seeing themselves more as Anatolian, Anatolian, Turkey. They're seeing themselves more as Turkish people than they are necessarily Muslims. We're Muslim Turkish people, but in many ways we get along better with the Christians than we do with these African Muslims down here. And so he had been serving over there. He decides to, to commit a coup. He's like, the, the emperor of the Nicene Empire isn't idiot, because he was an idiot. He's a bureaucrat that was running the thing into the ground. So he's like, you know what, I'm taking the throne. I'm, I'm, I'm killing the emperor, and there's a new little little emperor, there's a little guy who's going to be the emperor. I'm going to leave him, fine. I'm going to be his regent. We're going to be co-emperors. I'm not just trying to, to grab power for myself. Somebody needs to not destroy my empire. When this kid's old enough, I'll let him be emperor. But until then, I'm going to make us not stupid. And so Michael decides to take it over and becomes the, the Michael VIII Emperor of the Nicene Empire. And one of his first acts is to ally himself with Genoa against the Latin Empire of the East. And if you find yourself going, what? I mean, who sits there in Turkey and says, I want to take Constantinople, so I'll go over here to this place between France and Italy and ask for their help? Why would the, people, why would the Genoese care? Yeah. They're, they're, well, they're, the, they're both seafarers, and they want uh, all the uh, ports to themselves. For those of you that have been hanging around the class, do you remember any other Italians that have had any vested interests in Constantinople? The Venetians and the Genoans, the Genoese hate the Venetians. If you've ever played diplomacy or risk or anything like that, you'll know that mutual enemies make very bizarre bedfellows. You sit there and you go, hi, I'm England, and I'm going to lie with Turkey. Why? Because we both hate Germany. So I'm going to attack them from the North Sea. You attack them coming up from the South. You just, let's bottle them up. We have no connection other than this, but we both hate the same people, and we can help each other. Fine. Strange bedfellows. The Genoese and the Nicaeans both hate the Venetians, because the Venetians... The Venetians are the ones who have been behind this whole Latin Empire of the East. Everything has been 
them leading this. They're trying to create their own Venetian Empire, and they have been restricting the Genoese in the Mediterranean. You, know, you don't get, or Genoans, or I don't want to say Genoese, you don't get to be in here. So, so Michael's smart enough to go, wait, who's the enemy of my enemy? That makes them my friend. Who hates the Venetians? They do. Okay, so help me out here. And so, sure enough, he gets the, 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 the Greek Orthodox people working with Roman Catholics against Roman Catholics because of shipping rights. Strange bedfellows, funky history, it's all become politicized. The things that should be about trying to honor Christ all become about politics and money. And so the Latin Empire of the East ceases to exist. The Byzantine Empire of Constantinople is reborn. They came within a hair's breadth of ceasing to exist themselves. They were this little itty bitty falling apart empire, and then they came back into their own, and they're like, boom, Byzantine Empire in your face. So you go, all right, crucial moment, 1260. Also 1260, same year that if we trust the dating the scientists have given, that's the earliest that anybody could have created the Shroud of Turin. What's the Shroud of Turin? Anybody remember? Yes, supposedly. Uh, the, this is the grave cloth of Jesus. It's revered for centuries as a negative image of Jesus. If you flip, if you flip this, this is the negative of this. You can see Jesus's face, because apparently when he was resurrected, there was this bright flash of light, and it indelibly put his picture negatively on the grave cloth. Never mind the fact that I mean, when we look at the grave cloth, we go, the weave of it and everything seems to be a European weave of the Middle Ages. We dated the cloth to the earliest we could get it was late 13th century, and the pigments that are used appear to be European pigments from, like, Italy. Jesus' great cloth. Anyway, but, one of the most powerful things is, centuries of people, even down to today, go, that's what Jesus looked like. I mean, think about how many paintings, how many sculptures and things, you go, that's the, the face they give him, this long face, long nose, beard that's forked, parted hair in the middle, from this guy, that's the way Europeans thought he looked then, and that's the way an amazing number of people have thought he's looked ever since. So, it's interesting. Now, the first documented reference to this at all was in 1390. Nobody had ever mentioned this thing before 1390, but there was a bishop from France who wrote a letter to the Pope saying, by the way, you can dismiss this thing, it's a forgery. The forger even said it's a forgery. I'm the one that made the forgery. It's nothing, really. You don't have to deal with this. That's the first documentation we've ever heard of anything having to do with this, this shroud. I will say, however, nobody can figure out exactly how it was made. Now, for years they said, ah, it really is blood, or it really is... No, it is pigment. I mean, they, they figured this out. They're like, no, it's pigment. But exactly how they did it, exactly how they, they, they painted it on there, exactly how they did something, it's a little funky, which is part of why it's got this mystique. There's enough there that people go, yeah, but... I'm going to go on record as saying I'm pretty sure this is not the, the great cloth of Jesus. If you think it is, okay. I don't want to shake your faith. That's great. I think there was a great cloth of Jesus. I'm just pretty sure this isn't it. But I could be wrong. Okay. Anyway, so, but that, that would be the first time that this could have come up. Same year, Monkey Kong died after ruling the Mongols for 12 years and expanded this empire across pretty much everything. I mean, pretty much everything they could get their hands on, they took. Huge. He's succeeded by his brother, Kublai. And like I've said, if there are two cons that anybody remembers, it's Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan. If you've ever heard of two cons, these are the two cons that you've heard of. Um, why does everybody remember Kublai? Why does anybody remember Kublai Khan? Taylor Coleridge. Alright, a couple things. He wasn't as great a conqueror as Genghis or Monkey, but he's remembered for primarily for three things. Remember whatever else, but primarily for three things. First off, he finished conquering and thus unifying China, establishing a dynasty that lasted for over 100 years. So, because he had all this, it eventually started seeing itself as a nation, but that's more to get to the Qing dynasty, but even at this stage, you go, this is starting to unify China under one 
under one group of people in, in a more recent perspective of that. That's kind of big. Right? Secondly, he had so much crazy wealth. Remember I talked about crazy, crazy rich? So much crazy, crazy rich. He created this, this spectacular summer palace at a place called Kaiping, which they then called Shangdu, uh, covering roughly square, five square kilometers with exotic forests, with plants that nobody has ever seen, with birds from all sorts of different places, with leopards and tigers and lions. It's about the only place that you ever saw leopards and tigers and lions in the same place, was at Shangdu. And, and like I said, one of his favorite things was to go walking in the middle of the day with like his leopard and let the leopard kill anything he wanted to kill, and then make people go get him another one of those. Because you have the money to do that. It's like, literally like, I got, you know, go to the bank, get a thousand dollar bill, set it on fire, and go, oh, I can do that because I'm rich. Now don't give me another thousand dollar bill. That sort of thing, it's craziness. Every modern convenience imaginable, room, whole rooms plated with gold. Crazy rich, crazy rich. Does this place still exist? No, no, we totally got ransacked taken into other things. The foundations of it still exist, which is how we know when people describe it, we look at it and go, yeah, it's about right, you know, because they can, they can find the foundations. Anybody know what the Europeans tended to refer to Shangdu as? No, but it did help build uh, uh, some of the myths of Shangri-La. Xanadu. Insert your own Olivia and John reference here. But, but Xanadu, and this is where Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote in Xanadu, did Kublai Khan, uh, <laughs> so, but, but he said it was like, he said it was like 10 miles of, of, of parklands and things, which is not quite accurate. But. So, incredible wealth, massive wealth, uh, and, and, and consolidated in one spot. This is not Chengdu. I couldn't find any decent pictures of Xanadu anywhere. Uh, everything I did was Olivia Newton-John or some sort of weird fantasy painting or whatever. Uh, Xanadu was designed specifically along Chinese lines. He got a, the, the best Chinese architect, the Frank Lloyd Wright of China at the time, to design it in very Chinese fashion. So I just tried to find a really opulent looking Chinese palace. This is not Chengdu. We don't have any decent pictures. If you can Google image a decent looking picture of Shangri, of Shangri, of, of Shangdu, great, go for it. Third thing that makes him probably famous to us Europeans is he's one of the first to meet Europeans, right? And it was here at, at Shangdu that he received and impressed the Venetian trader known as Marco Polo, who in 1266 had been sent east to find Prester John. Who's Prester John? A figment of somebody's imagination. In the medieval mindset, if there could just be a great Christian king out there that could stop all the horrible, horrible Muslims, and so people started talking about, oh, there is. There's a great, he owns half of Asia. I thought I, thought I heard half of Africa. Yeah, that too. Half of Africa, that's what I said. He's great, he's a Christian king, he's awesome, he's a priest too. Yeah, 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 and he can fly. Like, everybody would tell all sorts of stories about Prester John, and they really believed it. To the point, like I said, we're in 1266. Marco Polo said, I want to find Prester John. I want to find his kingdom. And so that was one of the main reasons he was sent out. And instead, brought back pasta. Well, and ultimately, that, the Mongols did that even more so. But he brought back pasta, and I loved him for this. Okay? This makes me very happy. Now, any good Italian will say, No! No! We came up with it independently! So anyway... And on that note, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that as we go through and, and we interact with you in our lives, nothing that we're going through is, is new to you and nothing is even really new to this world. I pray, Lord, help us to look back at, at the people who, who try to, to, to force other people to, to follow you or to try to respond to difficulties with aggression or the people who um, who get so caught up in the things of this world that they miss the things that are important to you. And I pray, Lord, help us not just to learn about what they've done so that we can shake our heads, but help us to look at our own lives and see are there ways that we have been like this. Help us, Lord, to seek you out first and foremost and to try to desire to be the people you sculpted us to be. 
give us to you in Jesus' name. Amen.